This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So now it is with great pleasure that I introduce my co-Zoombox, Dr. Breeze Bell, who is an assistant professor of clinical medicine in the UCSF Division of Palliative Care and the Division of Hospital Medicine. Dr. Bell earned her medical degree from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, completed her residency in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. She completed a fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine at UCSF, and then followed that because she didn't have enough degrees behind her name with a fellowship in integrative medicine at the UCSF Osher Center. She is an internal medicine doc specializing in palliative care, hospital medicine, and integrative medicine. And as a clinician, researcher, and teacher, she's been really passionate about supporting patients' health in each stage of their journey, focusing on how to improve quality of life, manage symptoms, and provide care to really optimize wellness. So I am thrilled to have her join us today, and the floor is yours, Dr. Bell. Thank you, Dr. Mishra, for such a kind introduction, and welcome, everyone. I'm absolutely delighted to be here with you all today and really looking forward to uh, our discussion on integrative palliative medicine. So as mentioned, um, this is an introduction to integrative palliative care and symptom management. So just a brief overview of what we'll be covering today. First, I will be doing an introduction to integrative palliative care. Um, I'll also be presenting a case study highlighting how you can use integrative tools in the palliative care approach to a, a patient who's living with cancer. And then we'll touch on some resources for um, patients as well as providers. So I first want to think about what does it really mean when we take an integrative approach to our health? And I really love this wheel of health that was created by the Duke University Integrative Medicine uh, Center. And as you can see, you know, at the center of the wheel is really you, everything that makes up who you are as a person. And that's certainly something we could talk at length about uh, on its own, but sort of the mindful awareness that springs from this beautiful experience of, of being alive as a human. And, you know, in the circle around that is all of these wonderful lifestyle practices that contribute to our health and well-being, as you can see here. And I really like to think about the healthcare model that we use as a broader circle around that, that's utilizing lots of tools for prevention, um, and wellness optimization throughout the lifespan, as well as gold standard conventional um, medical practices, in addition to integrative and complementary approaches to really support the person in um, having you know, the, the, their best um, wellness and quality of life throughout the entire life journey. So when we think about taking an integrative approach to health, the primary aim is to optimize health and quality of life for people at all stages of their health journeys. We aim to use a bigger toolkit, combining the best of biomedicine, um, which is the preferred term for Western medicine, with evidence-based holistic and integrative therapies to optimize health outcomes and quality of life. Um, this strategy really is designed to empower individuals to engage with and enhance their own healing experience. And we also aim to create individually tailored therapeutic regimens that address the well-being of the entire person. Importantly, we maintain that healing is always possible, even in situations where a cure may not be attainable. And this is particularly relevant in an integrative approach to palliative medicine. 
And it's also important to point out that this is not a rejection of gold standard therapies in favor of alternative treatments. So as you know, by now, there is a strong working uh, definition for integrative oncology. And I just wanna to touch on this as a reminder, which is a patient-centered evidence-informed field of cancer care that uses mind and body practices, natural products, and lifestyle modifications from many different healing traditions alongside gold standard cancer therapies. And I want to um, pivot now to talk about how integrative palliative medicine is really related to this practice. But first I'll just share some of the kind of leading organizations in the palliative care world. What does palliative medicine mean? As you can see here, there's different working definitions from the World Health Organization, the Center to Advance Palliative Care, also known as CAPSI, and the National Consensus Project for Quality Palliative Care. And what I take away from these three different definitions is that palliative care or palliative medicine as the field is actually officially known is um, a specialty type of medical care for individuals and their loved ones, their support communities who are living with serious illness that is designed to help um, individuals live as well as possible for as long as possible at all different stages of their health journeys. So what does it mean to take an integrative approach to palliative care? You know, similar to integrative oncology, we're really dipping into an expanded toolkit here and using a broader range of therapeutic tools for symptom relief, including biomedical treatments, such as pharmaceuticals if needed to treat you know, symptoms related to serious illness like pain, as well as integrative therapies such as meditation, diet, exercise, and the appropriate use of supplements. We also take a holistic approach to well being and healthcare. So, symptom relief often includes therapies that support the well being of the entire person rather than an isolated physical symptom alone. So, for example, the use of restorative yoga for help with fatigue, mood disorder, and pain, or other similar um, symptom clusters that tend to accompany serious illness. One of the key um, goals of taking an integrative approach to all healthcare, but certainly this is true in the palliative medicine world as well, is to really empower our patients to feel that they're as in control um, of their health and healing process as possible um, as they're coping with a situation that may feel very out of control. So oftentimes incorporating lifestyle and integrative therapies can be a great strategy to help um, individuals feel empowered on their journeys. There's many reasons to consider taking an integrative approach to palliative care, and there's a lot of overlap with this, the reasons why we think about an integrative approach to oncology or just well-being in general. First of all, there's a huge demand for these services. As you all know, cancer, for example, remains a huge public health burden in the United States, and there's a huge drive in this condition as well as many other serious chronic illnesses for um, well-being, which has created an entire flourishing industry around integrative and complementary practices. And this is a, um, a systematic review that estimated the prevalence of integrative medicine use among cancer patients worldwide that was published in 2012 in Integrative Cancer Therapeutics. And on average, about 50% of individuals in the US who are living with cancer use some form of integrative medicine. And this practice pattern also extends into the strategies that people are using to enhance their quality of life and symptom management in the setting of cancer as well. We also encourage using an integrative approach to palliative care for safety reasons. In this systematic review that was published in 2017 of 21 different studies, it showed that up to 95% of patients surveyed 
were using some form of complementary or alternative medicine during their cancer treatment. And I'll note that that's no longer the preferred term, which is now integrative medicine, but I've used the term here because that was what was used in this study. And um, another important point from this study is that 20 to 77% of patients surveyed did not disclose their integrative medicine use to the providers. And they also looked into the primary barriers to disclosure. Um, number one, the provider did not ask. Number two, patients were concerned that their provider might disapprove. And number three, patients believed that their integrative medicine use was irrelevant to their cancer care. So the key takeaway here for providers is to remember to ask patients what herbs, supplements, and botanicals they are using in addition to prescription and over-the-counter biomedicines. And for patients who are on the line, it's really important to disclose this information to your doctor so that your doctor can work with you to ensure that you're using a safe and effective supplement regimen in addition to everything else that um, they're helping you with. We also think about integrative approaches to palliative medicine and oncology as an opportunity to actually increase engagement and adherence with biomedical treatments for cancer. So this was an interesting 2018 study published in JAMA Oncology that showed that complementary or integrative medicine use was actually associated with a decreased overall five-year survival and increased risk of death among patients with breast, prostate, lung, and colorectal cancer. This was obviously um, very alarming to read, but when they actually did some additional analyses, they found that that increased risk of death was mediated entirely by a delay or refusal of gold standard cancer-directed therapies. There is some data that suggests that working with integrative oncology and adjacent practices may increase the likelihood that patients will pursue gold standard biomedical treatment. And this is a small study of 357 patients who were seen at an Italian integrative oncology clinic between 2013 to 2017. Among those, 6.2% initially refused biomedical therapy for their cancer. And of the 17 patients who presented for follow-up, um, seven of those, about 41%, ultimately did accept um, cancer-directed therapy after meeting with their integrative oncologist. There's also many reasons to consider an integrative approach to palliative care based on the data that we have regarding symptom relief. So there are many integrative tools that can improve cancer-related symptoms, and I'll just highlight this study um, that was a small study, a prospective observational study looking at 30 patients who had advanced lung cancer who underwent seven weekly sessions of acupuncture in addition to their gold standard treatment. And researchers in this uh, study noted statistically significant improvements in pain, appetite, nausea, anxiety, and well being. And there were clinically meaningful improvements in pain for almost two thirds of the patients who participated and one-third of patients reported um, subjective improvement in their well-being. And uh, looking at this waterfall plot over here on the left, what you can see is that um, all of the vertical bars that are below this black line here represent significant improvement in pain. So some patients had no change and two patients reported being worse um, after treatment, but the, the majority did report improvement in their symptoms. There are many other examples of how integrative approaches can result in enhanced symptom relief during cancer treatment. This is a 2017 randomized controlled trial that looked at the use of cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnosis versus an attention control on uh, outcomes of 
emotional distress among 100 women with breast cancer who were undergoing radiation treatment. So the participants completed a questionnaire for emotional distress at four time points during the study, and they had an initial 30-minute session followed by twice weekly 15-minute sessions and a final 30-minute session of either the intervention or the attention control throughout their radiation treatment. And what you can see here over on the image on the right is that those who underwent the cognitive behavioral therapy plus hypnosis, which is the, the red line here, um, had a very significant improvement in their emotional distress during radiation, at the end of radiation, and sustained a month later as compared to those who pursued an attention control. And just to clarify in case that term is unclear to you, attention control essentially means that they met with someone who held their attention, but there wasn't any therapeutic intervention like cognitive behavioral therapy or hypnosis. We also have a powerful systematic review that was um, published here in 2019 that demonstrates that uh, regular exercise has dramatic outcomes and strong evidence for improving many cancer-related symptoms. So as you can see here in the column on the left, this is a list of common cancer-related symptoms, including fatigue, health-related quality of life, physical functional status, anxiety, depression, and lymphedema. And for all of these, you can see that either aerobic exercise, resistance exercise, or a combination resulted in strong evidence for benefit in terms of the reduction in these symptoms over time. So there's a lot of content in this table, but you know, typically what I advise my patients when it comes to exercise is one, you know, start where your body's at and gradually work to um, increase your physical activity as tolerated. But typically what we're seeing here is about two to three times per week of aerobic or resistance exercise is adequate for a dramatic improvement in several cancer-related symptoms. One of the most common uh, challenges that I face with my patients who are undergoing radiation, chemotherapy, as well as surgical interventions for cancer is that cancer treatments commonly lead to dry mouth and taste changes, uh, which can be incredibly challenging and upsetting as you're going through it. The good news is that these symptoms typically do improve with time, but it can uh, make the experience of undergoing cancer treatment much more difficult. And it can also be a risk factor for malnutrition and weight loss if you're not able to maintain adequate oral intake. So I will point out that acupuncture before and during radiation is a very powerful tool that's evidence-based to help prevent dry mouth. And it's something that I recommend to everyone um, undergoing radiation to the head and neck region. Citrus infused liquids can also help soothe dry mouth throughout the day. And there's also several amazing dietary tips that we can use throughout cancer treatment to help manage taste changes and really to use your um, home kitchen, if you will, to work for you. So this is a beautiful graphic from Rebecca Katz's website, which I strongly recommend to everyone uh, to check out for how you can use common ingredients in your kitchen, like olive oil, citrus, salt, maple syrup, to flavor your foods in particular ways so that you can mitigate some of the challenges that you're noticing in terms of how your taste has changed. I'll also mention this one product, which is Miracle Berries, um, available for uh, low cost on uh, websites like Amazon, which can be really helpful for helping with bitter taste if that's something that you're experiencing.
Turmeric is a very powerful plant that is widely used in many different medical healing traditions, um, especially in Ayurvedic medicine to combat inflammation, arthritis, and cancer. And it is thought to have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and likely anti-cancer and cardioprotective properties as well. And this is something that we use very commonly in the integrative oncology space, as well as in the integrative palliative care space to help with symptom management. This is a really interesting study that demonstrated a topical application of turmeric um, in a paste that was mixed with sandalwood oil um, during radiation treatment among 50 patients with head and neck cancer. And what they found was that those who applied turmeric five times per day throughout the period of radiation around the field had a lower incidence of developing radiation-induced dermatitis at all study points and also developed less severe dermatitis throughout the radiation treatment. So this is one option for how to apply turmeric topically. Um, and sometimes it can be helpful for myofascial pain syndromes as well. I also frequently use this as a supplement orally for my patients in doses up to a thousand milligrams twice a day um, to help with inflammatory pain syndromes. And I would just caution to never start this without speaking with your medical team to make sure that there aren't any contraindications for you. I'll also point out that many of these tools that we use with hope for symptom relief also have possible or, or promising anti-cancer potentials. So I want to touch on turmeric here for a moment. Uh, there are studies that have demonstrated that it may have anti-cancer effects, especially for GI tract cancers, such as from the colon or the pancreas when taken orally. In a phase two human trial of 21 patients, again, a small study, and we need additional research here, but an exciting proof of concepts uh, study that showed that patients with advanced pancreatic cancer who received 8,000 milligrams of turmeric per day, among these two showed significant clinical responses with a reduction in the size of their tumor. And this is over here, this um, image is a 2012 preclinical study that was done in mice that looked at the size of tumor volumes when mice were treated um, with nothing, which if you look down here at the, these little mice tumors, um, these are the tumor sizes of mice who received no cancer therapy. This is the tumor size of mice who received um, turmeric alone. This is the tumor size of mice who were treated uh, with chemotherapy alone. And as you can see, the combined treatment of turmeric uh, and uh, chemotherapy resulted in the most significant reduction in tumor volume. Cannabis is another topic that we use all the, um, that we talk about all the time in the integrative oncology and integrative palliative care space. So as you know, the cannabis plant uh, is thought to increasingly be a medicinal plant containing over 400 chemically active compounds that's been in medicinal use for over 3000 years. And we, you know, until recently have had a very significant federal restriction on cannabis research. So more research is needed here, but we do have several randomized controlled trials that have shown cannabis to be as effective or superior for treating chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting as compared to you know, gold standard medications like Compazine. We also have some early data suggesting that it may be helpful for chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy anorexia cachexia syndrome, and cancer-related pain. But in these symptoms, more data is really needed. 
And many of my patients often ask me if cannabis can treat cancer. This is really its own talk that is worthy of a, a you know, extended discussion on the topic. But what I'll say on the topic is that there is a growing body of preclinical evidence suggesting anti-cancer benefits uh, from cannabis, but much more data is needed. And I will just highlight this phase two proof of concept study in 21 patients who had recurrent glioblastoma multiforme. Um, this study demonstrated improved survival among patients who were treated with THC and CBD plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. And this was a significant finding. And I'm hoping that we'll get a lot more rigorous research on this topic in the next five to 10 years as federal restrictions on cannabis research continue to relax. Uh, but what I tell my patients at this point is that we often use cannabis in low doses for treating many cancer-related symptoms. And I'm very happy to support my patients in developing safe and effective regimens to do so. I do not recommend high-dose cannabis protocols uh, to treat cancer because at this point, we simply don't have the data to support that practice. And we also um, see some significant downsides you know, in terms of ability to have an excellent functional status, participate in exercise and maintain good nutrition on very high doses of cannabis. And we know that those lifestyle practices are incredibly important. I'll also point out that exercise is not only associated with significant improvement and in quality of life in the setting of cancer, but has also demonstrated a clear inverse association between how much someone is exercising and risk of mortality from breast cancer, colon cancer, and all other cancers. And this effect is likely dose dependent. So here I wanna take sort of a step back and just comment on some of the important principles of integrative oncology that you've already been introduced to, which really overlap quite strongly with the um, integrative approach to palliative care. So there is abundant evidence that lifestyle influences cancer risk as well as cancer-related quality of life, uh, recovery path, and risk of recurrence. And according to the American Institute for Cancer Research and the World Cancer Research Fund, nearly 50% of cancers are lifestyle-related and potentially preventable. The really great news about this is that the same tools that we use to help reduce risk of ever developing a cancer can also help with cancer-related quality of life once a diagnosis has been made and can help assist with cancer recovery and recurrence risk reduction. I also wanna point out that many things contribute to cancer and it's never anyone's fault if you're diagnosed with a cancer diagnosis. I'll note here that excess weight does increase cancer risk um, and there's a lot of data linking you know, several different types of cancer um, to excess weight. And the burden for this is greater for women than for men. Uh, but it is one reason to remain active and try to maintain a healthy weight, both before and after cancer diagnosis. I'll also note here that a 2016 study in JAMA found that poor diet is now the number one risk factor for death in the United States. And much of this has to do with the association between poor dietary pattern and cancer. So now we'll shift gears a bit and think about how we actually enhance quality of life in the setting of cancer. So I'll just draw your attention to the World Cancer Research Fund and their 10 recommendations for cancer prevention, as well as uh, optimizing cancer recovery. And we use these same principles in the setting of integrative palliative care to help support 
patients and um, their loved ones in the setting with, of cancer to recover as well as they possibly can. So diet is a huge piece that I focus on with my patients. And as you can see here, we're currently really not meeting our goals in terms of the uh, even conservative dietary guidelines that uh, the federal government put forward from 2015 to 2020. Unfortunately, only about 12.2% of adults are meeting their fruit recommended daily allowance and less than 10% of adults are meeting their vegetable recommended daily allowance. And we do have significant data uh, demonstrating that you know, dietary pattern really does influence cancer recurrence and survival. So in a 2014 study of over a thousand patients who had stage three colon cancer, those who were drinking two or more sugar sweetened beverages per day had a significant increased risk of cancer recurrence. And this risk was significantly um, increased exponentially for those who also were not exercising and had a lot of excess weight. And over here on the right, I'll um, draw your attention to the Women's Healthy Eating Study, which was a prospective observational study of almost 1,500 women with early stage breast cancer, which showed a significant survival advantage in women who ate five or more servings of produce and walked 30 or more minutes per day. And what I'll say from the palliative medicine standpoint is that not only do these lifestyle patterns influence cancer outcomes and risk recurrence, uh, recurrence risk, excuse me, but they're also incredibly impactful in terms of how people feel when they are going through their cancer treatment protocols. So I really do work with my patients to support them in developing an exercise pattern that works for where their body is at as they're going through their treatment and recovery process, as well as leaning into um, dietary pattern that is not only nourishing, but also manageable with the ways that we need to modify you know, our lifestyles and our diets in the setting of serious illness. You've already had an entire talk on nutrition, so I'm just going to leave this here for your reference later, but you know, I really think that the uh, anti-cancer dietary pattern um, that we highlight for our patients can be summed up pretty well by Michael Pollan's um, quote here, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I do support my patients in developing an anti-inflammatory dietary pattern to the extent that they're able and find that that has uh, benefits both in terms of quality of life, as well as, you know, the hope that it can influence cancer outcomes. I'll also just to briefly touch on the benefits of eating organic food. And I want to point out that we know that organic food is incredibly expensive in our society because of the way that the uh, government subsidies currently work. And this is not accessible for many, many um, individuals living in America and also abroad. But there is some data to suggest that there is an inverse association between organic food intake and risks of certain cancers, including postmenopausal breast cancer and lymphoma. And this was published in 2018 in JAMA. Acknowledging that organic food is very expensive, I'll just draw your attention here to the Dirty Dozen list, which is updated every year. Apologies that I uh, don't have the most up-to-date list there. This is great to reference and it's easily available online. It's usually pretty much the same year to year and it highlights which um, fruits and vegetables tend to be the most contaminated with pesticides. And it is great if you can to try to um, buy those you know, either organic or at your local farmer's market, you can also 
often get lower cost options that are not certified organic, but are grown without pesticides. I'll also point out that it is very important, both from an integrative oncology standpoint, as well as a cancer-related quality of life standpoint, to minimize alcohol use as much as possible. And we know that there is a strong correlation between increased alcohol intake and risk of many cancers, including those that are highlighted here. And there was a really profound worldwide systematic analysis for the global burden of disease that was published in The Lancet in 2018 that essentially concluded that um, no amount of alcohol is safe because of the very strong correlation between alcohol intake and risk of many cancers. So what I often recommend um, for my patients who are you know, either hoping to prevent cancer or who are recovering from cancer, it's best not to drink alcohol at all if possible. If you are drinking alcohol, I encourage you to modify by limiting to no more than four alcoholic beverages per week, trying to keep some days alcohol free each week, and remembering that restaurants and bars often serve larger than standard sizes, and considering sort of alternating alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages so that you can pace yourself um, on a social evening. I'll also mention that it's a really exciting time for the non-alcoholic beverage industry. It's a great time to be trying NA drinks. Um, there's some much better and more interesting options than there used to be. And I'll just point out a couple here that are, are very popular with several of my patients. Down here in the left corner, Athletic Brewing is um, a very popular brewery that um, brews exclusively alcohol-free beers. Um, Wilfred's down here in the right corner is a non-alcoholic cocktail that is incredibly uh, delicious. It's um, low sugar and has a lot of bitters and other herbs in it. And it's a really interesting flavor. And then there's also several different cannabis drink lines now as well. If you're living in a state where cannabis is um, legal, it is worth pursuing once you get some guidance from your doctor about how to safely explore the use of cannabis, both for symptom relief, but also occasionally it can be used as an option for a social beverage, you know, in lieu of alcohol and can be safely done. As I already touched on, uh, uh, exercise is incredibly important for decreasing cancer risk, improving cancer outcomes, and is associated with longer life. I work with my patients all the time to develop a tailored exercise regimen. I do also wanna to touch on supplements and botanicals, acknowledging that this is not the focus of this talk um, and that it is very important to talk with your medical team about their specific recommendations regarding supplements and botanicals um, for you and your particular health situation. Having said that, I'll draw your attention to the AICR WCRF 2018 guidelines, which states very clearly to not use supplements for cancer prevention and recovery. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Supplements like biomedicines are concentrated, potent you know, doses of uh, very potent herbs and other subs substances that can have a profound effect on the body, but can also have strong interactions with everything else that you're taking, including biomedicines, as well as other supplements. And it's important to acknowledge that these are powerful medicines that should be used with care in the same way that we want you to use you know, biomedicines with care and not take more than you need. There is a short list of supplements that we often do recommend to our patients with cancer, including organic green tea, 
And, you know, for my patients, I do recommend up to five cups per day um, that can be either caffeinated or decaffeinated. It's also important to correct vitamin D deficiency. So it's very reasonable to ask for a vitamin D level from your medical team if you haven't already received this and to aim to you know, uh, correct that deficiency with supplementation to a serum level of 40 to 50. In some instances, turmeric can also be an important part of an anti-cancer supplement regimen. And we do also recommend medicinal mushrooms um, in certain instances as well. But again, very important to clear with your oncology team and your integrative medicine team before starting this. Um, there may be other specific supplements that could be used during your cancer treatment, but these would be really important to talk with your medical team on a case-by-case -case basis. I appreciated the question regarding specific supplements to avoid. And I would say that um, quite frankly, the list is long. And so I think it's more about which supplements to choose rather than the ones to avoid for the reasons I've already outlined. But one, um, what I would consider to be an alternative medicine practice that I always recommend my patients discontinue if they are pursuing it is IV ozone, which has been associated with fatal complications. So please, if you are pursuing that, um, disclose that to your medical team so that you can all talk about a safe um, way um, to meet your needs, ideally without that intervention. I also just want to point out what is sort of the real elephant in the room when it comes to integrative medicine, which is that access inequity is a huge challenge, and it parallels the disparities that we see in specialty palliative care and other medical fields. Unfortunately, this also reflects our cultural values and um, government policy at this time regarding what we choose to subsidize and ensure. And my hope is that this will continue to evolve in the coming years as you know, more providers and advocates um, in the community really advocate for the use of lifestyle-based preventive and integrative tools to optimize health. I'll just point out, this is an area where there's not that much data in the literature, but there was a national health survey use of integrative medicine in 2012, so a bit out of date, but it hasn't been repeated since then. Looking at essentially how integrative medicine access and use is impacted by demographic measures. And as you can see here, we see that individuals who identify as um, uh, Hispanic or non-Hispanic Black, um, individuals who do not have a high school degree, and individuals who are below the U.S. poverty threshold are much less likely to be able to seek out and obtain integrative medicine um, than individuals who are white, well-educated, and wealthy. And the primary barriers to integrative medicine use that they identified in the survey are these four, awareness, availability, accessibility, and affordability. Now, I'll point out that these emerging solutions are really just the tip of the iceberg and much more is needed here. But we are starting to see an increase in insurance coverage for some integrative therapies, including acupuncture, which is now covered by Medi-Cal. And it is covered by Medicare for some diagnoses, as well as several private insur uh, insurance plans. Physical therapy is widely covered by most insurance plans, as is, are some exercise training programs. And nutrition counseling is also increasingly covered by insurance. It is also important that we feel empowered as providers to educate our patients on no and low-cost therapies, such as deep breathing, um, exercise that can be done without the use of machines, um, meditation, 
and excuse me, aromatherapy. And there are also programs in the community that can offset costs, such as food banks, food voucher programs. And I also encourage you to seek out community-based acupuncture for sliding scale acupuncture treatments, massage schools, and grant-funded programs, which do exist at places like the uh, Osher Center for Integrative Health at UCSF. I'll now shift gears to uh, present a brief case study looking at the use of integrative palliative care techniques um, in a real patient with uh, cancer diagnosis. So Mr. H is 67. He is, uh, identifies as, ma as male and he's a former smoker with a history of COPD as well as a stage 3B squamous cell lung cancer. He's currently undergoing radiation as well as concurrent chemotherapy treatment for his cancer. And he came to see us at the SMS clinic to get help with the following symptoms. He's extremely tired all day, despite sleeping well at night. He has poor appetite and he's been losing weight. He notes burning and tingling pain in both of his feet and he has significant anxiety related to his cancer diagnosis. So we'll first touch on cancer-related fatigue. This is an extremely common problem among individuals with cancer with a prevalence ranging from 50 to 100%, depending on the cancer diagnoses and the studies that you look at. It's really defined by a persistent sense of fatigue and poor energy that is not relieved by rest and associated with poor function and poor quality of life. There are many factors that contribute to this issue, including a direct effect from cancer and cancer therapies, sedating medications that we often use for symptom management, deconditioning and malnutrition, comorbid uh, emotional um, health uh, concerns like depressed mood and anxiety, underlying complex medical conditions that can also contribute in a seriously ill individual, disrupted sleep and untreated pain. So there are some really common sense first steps that I always take with my patients who present to me with cancer-related fatigue, including uh, trying to eliminate as much as possible or at least minimizing sedating drugs, especially those that aren't creating a lot of benefit, looking to correct reversible underlying causes. So I always will check for hypothyroidism in my patients, as well as several common metabolic and nutritional causes of fatigue, like iron deficiency, anemia, B12 deficiency, vitamin D deficiency. And I work with my patients to correct those because it can make a big difference in how they feel. And I also spend a lot of my time educating my patients and their loved ones about how normal the symptom truly is and how widespread it is in the setting of uh, uh, advanced cancer. In terms of the interventions, first, I always, as I mentioned, work with my patients to help them develop an exercise regimen that works for their bodies where they're at right now. And as I've highlighted already during this talk, we have multiple really robust meta-analyses that demonstrate benefit in terms of cancer-related fatigue um, using exercise. Aerobic exercise is ideal. Resistance training and yoga can also be helpful for this symptom. And typically I advise my patients to work towards a goal of 20 to 30 minutes of being active ideally three days per week or more. And that could be as simple as walking outside, recumbent biking, restorative yoga, lightweight training. There's many options and it's almost always possible to adapt the program so that it works for your body. 
There are many complementary therapies that I also like to introduce for this issue. Um, acupuncture is one that I will often uh, recommend for my patients who are struggling with cancer fatigue. There was a 2015 meta-analysis demonstrating that weekly acupuncture significantly reduced cancer-related fatigue in um, patients with cancer compared to gold standard therapy alone. We also find that dietary omega-3 fatty acid intake um, is associated with lower rates of cancer-related fatigue among individuals with breast cancer. So I do try to advise an anti-inflammatory diet rich in omega-3 fatty acids. There are some supplements that can be helpful here as well. American ginseng is something that I use all the time in my personal practice, which has uh, a multi-site randomized controlled trial of over 350 patients demonstrated that taking 2000 milligrams per day of daily American ginseng versus placebo demonstrated significant improvement in cancer-related fatigue at eight weeks uh, with no adverse effects. I will mention that as with all supplements, really important to talk with your healthcare team about this because there are certain cancers, especially hormone responsive cancers like prostate and certain breast cancers where we prefer not to use American ginseng due to a theoretical risk of um, hormone responsiveness. So in that instance, I usually pivot and use Korean ginseng, but again, always important to do this under the guidance of a medical professional. There are smaller studies that have also demonstrated significant benefit with acetyl L-carnitine um, for cancer fatigue. I'll note that in my clinical practice, I have mixed outcomes with this. And so I sometimes do use this in my practice, but not as much as with American ginseng. And this is a, a nice figure here from the American ginseng randomized controlled trial that was published in 2013. As you can see here at four weeks and at eight weeks, um, patients who were taking ginseng compared to placebo reported substantially significant improvements in their uh, reported um, energy levels. Back to Mr. H. So he also reports poor appetite with associated weight loss. So anorexia cachexia syndrome is the medical term for this very common phenomenon that we see among patients with advanced cancer in particular. And it does affect a widespread proportion of this population, up to 80% of individuals who have particularly advanced stages of cancer. And it's defined as abnormal weight loss. So, um, excuse me, that should say greater than five to 10% of their pre-diagnosis weight. Um, and I'll also point out that this weight loss is incredibly complex. As you can see here, there are many different sort of molecular pathways that are involved. And it's thought to be a very complex signaling um, process and pathway that's mediated primarily by pro-inflammatory cytokines that are driven by the cancer itself. This is an independent risk factor for increased risk of death related to uh, cancer. So again, first steps in low-hanging fruit are always to normalize this. Many people have a lot of guilt and shame about the fact that they feel unable to regain weight, even though they're doing an incredible job with their nutrition. Uh, it's important to note that it's not just about the calories that you're taking in. It's also about the inflammatory state within the body that can make it very difficult to hold on to calories um, in the way that bodies can, you know, before an advanced cancer diagnosis. I always refer my patients to see a specialized dietitian 
in my case at the UCSF Cancer Center. And I really love to partner with our dietitians to support our patients in managing their nutrition. And we have wonderful integrative dietitians at uh, the Osher Center as well. And I make sure that we're um, thoughtfully treating associated symptoms like untreated pain, nausea, reflux, and constipation, all of which can further suppress appetite and um, make this problem worse. When we think about um, integrative therapies for this issue, a lot of it does come down to lifestyle. So diet and exercise are sort of the, the most impactful interventions that we can use. So I work with my patients all the time to help them develop a dietary pattern that optimizes smaller, more frequent meals, increasing their intake of healthy fats and proteins throughout the day, making sure that they're staying hydrated, which is a really important part of hunger and nutrition, um, leaning into antioxidant-rich foods so they can get the most nutrition possible out of their meals, and also leaning into high-quality nutritional supplements, which I use all the time in my patients who are rapidly losing weight in the setting of cancer. And I'll just point out two brands that I'm a particularly big fan of, Kate Farms and Orgain. Unlike some of the more conventional brands on the market, these are incredibly high quality. They're free of you know, the chemicals and additives that we see in some of the more uh, traditional conventional supplement products. They're plant-based and they also tend to be very flavorful. So my patients really like to eat them. Um, you can work with your medical team often to get these uh, supplements at a discount. So I encourage you to bring this to the attention of your medical team or your uh, dietitian if this is something that you'd like to try. I often refer my patients for resistance exercise and physical therapy, uh, because that can also help to stave off further loss of muscle mass, which is a big part of the problem in this, this particular issue. There are some supplements that have been shown to be helpful, particularly acetyl-L-carnitine uh, in the CARPAN trial. Again, this was a randomized controlled trial, but a small trial among patients with advanced pancreatic cancer who looked at BMI with acetyl-L-carnitine 4,000 milligrams daily or placebo over a four-week period. And what we found was that BMI increased significantly among those who were taking the acetyl-L-carnitine supplementation, um, whereas it decreased in placebo. There was a non-significant trend towards increase in survival as well. Many patients ask me if they can use cannabis to help them gain weight. And what I will say as a summary of the literature is that the data is conflicting at present and more research is needed. Non-randomized trials and anecdotal data do suggest benefit. Um, in terms of appetite and weight gain, but we do have a large phase three trial that found no difference between cannabis THC um, extract and placebo in terms of appetite, weight gain, or quality of life in individuals with cancer cachexia over a six-week period. I hope that we'll see additional randomized controlled trials on this topic in the coming years, as I mentioned earlier. And what I will say is that I do see clinical benefit with the thoughtful use of cannabis for many of my patients, but there's so much heterogeneity in the cannabis world right now that it's really important to work with your medical team to devise a cannabis regimen that is appropriate for your body. So please um, do talk to your medical team about this. Mr. H is also very concerned about the burning and the tingling in his feet, which is very common 
in the setting of cancer, we often see neuropathy and neuropathic pain in our patients who have cancer and who are undergoing um, particularly cytotoxic chemotherapy. The exact pathophysiology of this problem is incompletely understood, but as you can see here from this diagram, you know, different types of chemotherapy cause damage to nerves at different points. And oftentimes we see damage to nerves at multiple different points um, from the cancer treatment regimens that, they're, uh, that patients are receiving. The good news is that this typically does tend to improve among most individuals over time with cessation of therapy, but that is not always true. There are some first steps that I like to take with all of my patients, including avoiding extreme temperatures um, and using supportive care like gloves and socks. For certain types of cancer therapy, using cold therapy on hands, feet, and scalp during infusions can also be a very effective preventive technique for this issue. I often refer my patients for exercise counseling and physical therapy um, if there's any um, issues with balance or gait instability. And I also love to use acupuncture as a strategy to help prevent and stabilize this symptom. And will often recommend starting weekly acupuncture, you know, either um, very early on in the start of cancer treatment or before cancer treatment has started to help with prevention. Capsation is a topical agent that can be helpful for treating pain associated with neuropathy. And this is a placebo-controlled randomized crossover trial looking at capsation cream versus placebo among patients who had um, post-surgical neuropathic pain. Um, those who were using the capsation applied it four times a day for eight weeks, and then they actually crossed over and the intervention group became the control and vice versa. And what we found was that the capsation initially was actually associated with more skin burning, redness, and coughing because um, it can be an irritant. But at the eight-week period, there was a very significant improvement in pain control compared to placebo. And despite the initial irritation, patients actually preferred capsation to placebo significantly. So there was a 2017 um, Cochrane systematic review that demonstrated that acupuncture for neuropathy there is insufficient evidence to determine um, efficacy. What I often find in the clinical setting is that initiating acupuncture once you've already developed significant neuropathy tends to be less effective than um, using it as a preventive tool, as I just mentioned. I have a couple of comments on supplements here. And unfortunately, the, the key takeaway from this is that no supplements have really been shown to be effective for the prevention or treatment of neuropathy thus far. Mr. H is also struggling with significant anxiety related to his cancer diagnosis. And psychological distress is something that I um, talk with my patients about so often in the setting of a serious illness diagnosis like cancer. This kind of umbrella term includes several different diagnoses, including adjustment disorder with anxiety or depressed mood, as well as generalized anxiety, major depressive disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Estimates vary, but studies show that this affects nearly 40% of individuals who are living with cancer. And oftentimes we find that multiple modalities of therapy are needed for most effective treatment including pharmacologic therapy in many instances, supportive counseling or support groups, 
mind-body interventions, and at times there is a role for supplements as well. So the first steps that I like to take with my patients are always to screen for red flag signs and symptoms, um, such as suicidal ideation or other signs of being in a mental health emergency that require immediate referral to emergency mental health specialist. And then we, I will often discuss referral for supportive counseling with my patients, either within UCSF, you know, to the Osher Center or to the psycho-oncology um, group at the Cancer Center, but also to several providers in the community. And I typically do work with my patients to find the right fit for them. There are many um, modalities, integrative modalities that can improve um, emotional and psychological distress, including meditation and mindfulness, massage therapy, acupuncture, and exercise. And I also just want to comment on psychedelic uh, assisted psychotherapy, because this is something that I know is of interest to many right now in the community. And we have a really exciting growing body of literature that demonstrates that psychedelic treatment with psilocybin and or ketamine when combined with counseling can significantly improve anxiety, depression, and a sense of peace in the setting of cancer, particularly among individuals who have advanced or incurable cancer who are approaching the end of life. And there are several um, treatment centers that are offering ketamine treatment in the Bay Area, including Healing Realms, um, SAGE, and some others. I'll also just comment on the data for meditation for psychological distress in the setting of cancer. There was a randomized controlled trial that show of 90 patients with cancer who are randomized to either weekly meditation group for 1.5 hours versus a waitlist control over seven weeks. They completed validated questionnaires before and after the interventions. And what we found was that those who were in the meditation group experienced a 65% reduction in their mood symptoms over seven weeks as compared to a 12% reduction among um, individuals who are in the control arm. We've also seen some pretty significant impacts from massage therapy on mood. A 2016 systematic review and meta-analysis found a significant reduction in anxiety among individuals with cancer utilizing massage therapy as compared to controls in a pooled analysis of four randomized control trials. There's also evidence for benefit from yoga, acupuncture, and guided imagery, but more research is needed here. I will also draw your attention to two supplements that are sometimes used for psychological distress. Um, I'll first point out SAMe, which is a naturally occurring molecule that's involved in human cellular metabolism. There was a 2010 randomized controlled trial of 73 patients that demonstrated that SAMe was superior to placebo as an adjunctive treatment to SSRI in the treatment of depression, and that was uh, significant. And a 2016 Cochrane review compared SAMe to a class of antidepressants known as TCAs or tricyclic antidepressants and found that it was essentially just as effective as TCAs with fewer side effects. So I do sometimes use this um, supplement in my patients who have a combination of depressed mood and also myofascial pain. It often can be really beneficial for both of those um, concerns. And again, that is something you should always work with your medical team on before starting that. 
And this is another study that was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2010 that demonstrated that over six weeks, individuals who were taking SAMe versus placebo had a very significant reduction in their scores of uh, a validated depression scale. I'll also point out here CBD, which is one of the popular extracts from cannabis. Um, this has been associated with anxiolytic effects in both humans and animals. And in 2010, a double-blind randomized controlled trial of 24 individuals with social anxiety found significant improvement in anxiety symptoms um, with CBD therapy as compared to placebo. More study is needed in the cancer populations, but anecdotally, I do often use CBD or sort of a combined CBD THC tincture in my patients to help support them with emotional distress. I'll just draw your attention here to a few uh, important resources for patients and providers. These are clinical services that are specifically available at UCSF Medical Center for those who are affiliated with our institution. Um, the Cancer Resource Center is an incredible wealth of resources resources that I use and refer my patients to all the time. They have many guest speakers, support groups, classes um, for patients and caregivers. Um, they also have a wonderful personally tailored exercise counseling service, nutrition counseling, art for recovery, um, guided meditation and guided imagery, and uh, often have you know special events that are changing all the time. So I definitely encourage you to check out the website. UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Health also offers, as you know, personalized integrative care for individuals who are going through cancer treatment and recovery. And you can ask for a referral if that's something that you would like to explore with your medical team. And for individuals who are patients or providers at UCSF and who work on the inpatient side, we also launched the Hospital-Based Massage Therapy Fellowship, which was founded in June of last year and is led by my colleague, Carolyn Take, who's one of our fantastic massage therapy educators at Osher. Um, and I'm the medical lead for that program. And this is a program offering um, wonderful continuing education to certified massage therapists who wish to become skilled in caring for medically complex individuals. And um, we also offer free massage therapy to hospitalized patients who are um, at UCSF on a, a weekly basis. And there's a lot of other additional tools that I'll draw your attention to, and you can spend some more time um, with these resources later, but um, several websites that I would recommend for general integrative oncology, lifestyle support, a uh, couple of really great websites to look at supplement quality control, which I always encourage you to check out before you purchase a specific supplement. There's some wonderful mindfulness tools out there, and I'll draw your attention to, to just a few um, in particular, the Healthy Minds app, which is free. Insight Timer is also free. And then there's a wonderful MBSR stress reduction course um, that's offered throughout the year at the Osher Center. Um, and there's many acupuncture and manual medicine resources available throughout the community as well. And I've just listed a few of the leading practices offering psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy in the Bay Area here for your exploration. And um, that is my talk. Thank you so much. I look forward to uh, questions and comments. Thank you, Dr. Bell. That was um, jam-packed with such wonderful, uh, comprehensive information. You have, you have been a clear leader 
at UCSF in palliative care as well as integrative care. So it's really a delight to have you share so much knowledge with us in our audience. Um, so let's dive into it. So um, Julia asks a, a practical question of how do you recommend people take turmeric twice a day? And Julia, you may also be talking about uh, different forms, fresh versus a pill form, and then sometimes you've got turmeric, curcumin black with black pepper, plus or minus. So yeah, maybe tell us a little bit more about turmeric and any contraindications. Repeat that for the audience as well. Absolutely. Really great question. Thank you. So um, again, I would advise that you speak with your medical team because there are certain contraindications that are really important to review before starting a turmeric supplement. But typically I do advise that my patients take a high quality turmeric supplement in capsule form and you know can direct you to some high quality brands that are available in health food stores and online. It's very important to either take the activated form of turmeric, which is called curcumin, or take a turmeric supplement that includes black pepper because this dramatically increases absorption through the GI tract. And I usually will advise patients to start with 500 milligrams once a day with a, with a meal that contains some fat that will help with absorption and it will also help mitigate any of the sort of GI symptoms that can be associated with turmeric, like a little bit of heartburn or nausea or sometimes um, diarrhea. Um, and then gradually work up to a maximum daily dose of a thousand milligrams twice a day. There are contraindications, including certain cancer-directed therapies and other medication classes. Also, if you are on any blood thinners, that is sort of a soft contraindication to using turmeric. And typically I dose reduce for my patients who are on blood thinners because um, turmeric does have sort of an NSAID anti-inflammatory like effect. So it's similar to taking ibuprofen uh, and you have to be cautious about that. And some of my patients really cannot tolerate it due to irritation of the GI tract. And um, for those individuals, we have to go in a different direction. It's also wonderful to include turmeric in your diet. So it's a, a delicious ingredient that can be used in curries and sautés. It can be added to smoothies if that's a flavor that you like. Just keep in mind that you do need to add black pepper if you're using the whole turmeric in cooking. Perfect, thank you so much. And actually just to follow up on that, do you have any concerns about turmeric during radiation given the antioxidant effects? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think there is variability in practice. Um, Typically, I don't recommend systemic turmeric during uh, radiation, um, but as you can see, I have recommended topical turmeric in the past, but it's very important to me to partner with my colleagues in radiation oncology and oncology to make sure that our practice patterns are aligned. So I actually never start any supplements or integrative medicine practices without double checking with my colleagues to make sure that they're comfortable and supportive of the intervention. And typically I defer to their practice patterns if there's any discomfort at any time. That's perfect. And I, uh, just another follow-up on that, is there a good brand of turmeric or curcumin? <laughs> there's many. And for those of you who are really interested in getting more uh, data-driven information on top supplement brands, I do encourage you to consider subscribing to the Consumer Lab website, which is an independent quality control um, company that surveys and tests thousands of different brands of supplements um, and basically rates them in terms of whether they have what they say they have on the label, whether they're contaminated with any heavy metals, um, the bioavailability, as well as the cost and provides sort of a top list 
um, for many of the common supplements that we deal with. So for those of you who are really eager to learn more or who are providers, I do encourage you to explore that. The subscription um, is not very expensive. Um, I usually recommend Root2 brand. Um, Root2 curcumin is a product I've had really good success with with a lot of my patients. Perfect. Thank you for those specifics. Um, we got a question about what can a cancer patient expect at a visit with a palliative doctor? What emphasis is given to quality of life in general and not only during treatment? You know, I think what you can expect at a palliative care visit does vary depending on what your particular needs and concerns are and also where you're at in your health and cancer journey. Uh, but typically, you know, when I meet new patients at the symptom management service, my primary goal is just to find out more about who you are as a person, what brings joy into your life, you know, what have you lost over the course of your, your illness, and how can we work together to find strategies to help you reconnect with sources of joy and meaning. I also um, am very much focused on, you know, what are the symptoms that are most bothersome to you, um, including pain, changes in digestion, mood, sleep, energy level, um, several other challenges that can commonly come up in the setting of cancer and working together to develop a really collaborative treatment plan during treatment and beyond for how we can manage those symptoms and help you have the best quality of life possible for as long as possible. I do also work with individuals who are approaching the end of life. And in those situations, you know, we're also exploring uh, important topics around existential distress, around advanced care planning, thinking about the future, working to make sure that next steps in treatment are as aligned with goals and values in life as possible. And we can you know, provide an extra layer of support as, as you're navigating those um, complex and emotional decisions in your treatment plan as well. It's uh, amazing and really important work that you do for a lot of patients. Another person asks, in addition to acupuncture, are there other aspects of traditional Chinese medicine taken into consideration in palliative care? Absolutely. You know, I do have patients who use uh, traditional Chinese medicine, herbs and supplements as they're going through treatment. This is a more complex area that oftentimes can be challenging to navigate with conventional biomedical therapies for cancer because there can be many interactions between Chinese medical herbs and other herbs and supplements and cancer-directed therapies like chemo, immunotherapy, and other targeted therapies. So I do have patients who pursue those treatments, and I'm certainly supportive of that if it has been vetted and approved by their oncologists and if they're getting um, those herbs from a very reputable, high-quality source. You know, it's really important to make sure that the herbs are being grown um, organically and are free of contamination with heavy metals, which is unfortunately a major concern um, in many of the, the um, herbs that are grown uh, outside of the United States and also outside of the sort of strict organic practices that um, we typically recommend when it comes to supplements and herbs. That makes a lot of sense. I'm gonna go back to some of the questions that came in earlier. Um, to just make sure that we really get to the subjects that folks were interested in. So uh, Anita had asked early on, how do you find the balance between complementary or integrative approaches and conventional symptom management tools? Yeah. 
such a great question. And I do think that there's not sort of one simple answer that's true for every person. And it's also not true uh, or it's not sort of static at every phase of health and illness. So my general approach is really to just meet my patients where they're at. And if my patients really want to focus on a strategy that, you know, exclusively or primarily emphasizes integrative and complementary tools, I'm happy to meet them there. And, you know, for example, use opioid sparing pain management regimen so that we, we can really mitigate um, the concerns and the side effects associated with sedating medicines like opioids. I do love to introduce integrative tools into cancer care kind of early on in the cancer journey when I think they can be used in a really robust way to help support cancer recovery and also fully take advantage of all of the lifestyle tools that we have in the integrative medicine toolkit. But the beauty is that we can also use integrative medicine tools in a really uh, healing way, you know, throughout the cancer journey, including towards the end of life as well. And it's just what those tools are that sometimes shifts um, as an individual's need changes. So, and we might lean more into healing touch, body work, acupuncture, aromatherapy, mindfulness, psychedelics, you know, if a disease has progressed uh, to an advanced stage um, so that we can, you know, essentially work around some of the limitations of the body and help um, my patients and their loved ones access a sense of joy and meaning and, and good quality of life, regardless of their physical limitations. I will say though that, you know, Cancer symptoms can be incredibly debilitating, and I do use conventional medicines to help my patients feel better. And there is a real um, need at times and an appropriate space for the judicious use of medications like opioids and other non-opioid uh, biomedicines to treat pain and other symptoms. And I really encourage you if you're struggling with symptoms that are poorly controlled, to ask your doctors for a referral to specialty palliative care, uh, because you know I often find myself wishing that my patients were referred to see me sooner, so that we could help mitigate their suffering a lot earlier than uh, than we are able to at times. Mm -hmm. And I think you really uh, one of the questions that had come on earlier was uh, alternative ways to think about pain and ease pain, and I think you really have touched on so many aspects of that because that is a real. Uh, obvious issue for our cancer population. Um, uh, another question that just popped in is what if your oncologist does not look at integrative care favorably? Yeah, I, certainly this um, can come up culturally depending on the practice and the provider that you're working with. And that can be really stressful. You know, I think what I would say is a general rule that I firmly believe that part of the healing experience is working with providers who you know that you can trust and who you feel um, are able to fully meet you where you're at and he hear you and the concerns that you're bringing to the table and the values and priorities that you're bringing to the table. If you do feel that you're working with a medical team that isn't meeting your emotional needs in that way, I would encourage you to explore getting a second opinion from other providers. And also increasingly, there are integrative medicine resources available to you in the community, as well as at academic medical centers like UCSF. And so even if your primary oncologist isn't totally aligned with you, 
you can ask for a referral to an integrative medicine colleague who can partner with your oncologist to create a safe and effective integrative approach to your care so that you can feel heard and supported in your needs, um, while also making sure that you're receiving gold standard cancer-directed therapy, which is very important. And um, just to add on to that, on a practical note, the Society for Integrative Oncology has Mm -hmm. a website. You can Google Society for Integrative Oncology, and I believe they have a search function where you might be able to find some folks in your area. Um, We're obviously in the Bay Area. Um, but for those who are not in the Bay Area. Um, and then uh, in your in your hospital system, uh, there may be a symptom management service or a palliative care service. And so as, as Dr. Bell is mentioning, those are potential places to start. Great additions. Thank you. Um, Susan had asked about inflammation issues, and obviously that comes across through many aspects of integrative care, but I wonder if you want to just comment on how do we think about inflammation what are some of the anti-inflammatory um, take-home messages that you want the audience to leave with? Absolutely. I think it's a great question. And I did try to touch on this with a lot of different aspects of my talk. Um, you know, there are many things about the experience of living with cancer that are pro-inflammatory. The condition of cancer itself creates a pro-inflammatory state in the body. So many of the tools that we talked about tonight, including an anti-inflammatory dietary pattern, I would say is really fundamental here, as well as exercise, um, regular mindfulness practice, um, the appropriate use of supplements like turmeric, all of these tools can be used to calm inflammation in the body. And I do recommend integrating those as you go through your cancer journey at every stage in ways that feel accessible and appropriate to you to help calm inflammation inside the body. And then there are also specific healing traditions like uh, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, body work. All of these can be wonderful adjuncts to that that can also help calm inflammation in the body. I'm not sure if there was a more specific um, answer that you were looking for. Happy to add more detail. No, I think that's great. Um, Something that has come up, uh, and it, it would be great to have your opinion on this, is there's sort of the ideal guidelines and then there's the realism of meeting the patient where they are in their journey during, after, before um, diagnosis, treatment, etc. And so, for example, the question has come up, hey, I heard I shouldn't be having much sugar uh, or any sugar. How do I actually do that? Um, I don't feel well during therapy. I can only eat a few things. How do I kind of manage those pulls the guilt, et cetera. So how do you help guide patients on that, uh, you know, that sort of challenge of, of hearing what you might want to do and then actually being able to do those things? Thank you so much for bringing up this question. This comes up all the time in clinical practice, and it's something I feel really strongly about. So particularly for my patients who are undergoing active cancer directed therapy and feeling really poorly, or for those who have progressive advanced cancer where we're dealing with issues like anorexia cachexia syndrome. You know, I spend a lot of my time and energy actually encouraging patients to modify and relax the wonderful guidelines that they have been following, you know, oftentimes for many years when it comes to their cancer-related nutrition. And there's a lot of reasons for this. You know, number one, we know how important it is to maintain your weight and your nutrition um, just in terms of keeping calories and pounds on as much as possible. 
as you're going through your cancer treatment process and that anorexia and significant weight loss is an independent risk factor for cancer-related mortality. So setting aside the anti-inflammatory dietary pattern, a lot of times with my patients who are very sick, we just have to focus on getting those calories in and helping them to hold on to those precious pounds so they don't become more frail and thin because we know that this is associated with worse outcomes in the setting of cancer. I also think that the, I'll just quickly mention, you know, the guilt piece is really um, powerful and I think it can be incredibly toxic. And I do think that there's an entire industry that unfortunately preys on vulnerable individuals who are living with cancer. And it has become a very difficult environment to navigate. So I will encourage my patients to try to set aside you know, their strongly held beliefs around diet and really just lean into the foods that are comforting, that they can tolerate when they're not feeling well with the knowledge that we have to get you through this difficult period of treatment. And then we can slowly work on broadening the dietary pattern and, you know, reincorporating those anti-inflammatory principles. And um, do you uh, ever think about, and that's completely in line with how I think about this too, by the way, um, do you suggest things like 80-20 where, you know, you sort of try to do your best most of the time or as much as possible, and then some of the time you have to be realistic and, and make the choices that maybe aren't? Yeah. yeah. You know, for my patients who are feeling, well, first of all, let me take a step back. I strongly believe that there always needs to be space for joy and celebration in life, like even in the setting of serious illness, and that that's actually an incredibly important ingredient to optimizing health and recovery from serious illnesses like cancer. So even when my patients are doing great and they're fully pursuing their anti-cancer lifestyle, I usually recommend an 80-20 or a 90-10 approach, depending on what someone's personal needs are. Because, you know, I'm all about, hey, go to that special event, have a glass of wine if that's really important to you, you know, have that piece of cake if it's your favorite food in the world and it's your birthday, right? I don't think that rigidity really serves at a certain point. And I think that there has to be space for having joy in life and in the body. And part of that is the way that we celebrate through food and other important cultural rituals with our loved ones. And I think that that becomes even more true, you know, in the setting of more serious advanced illness, a lot of times we have to relax the conditioning that we've received around these topics and really just embrace, you know, leaning into the, the lifestyle and the foods that work for you. So yes, very big fan of the 80-20 approach. Um, a couple of uh, uh, quick fire questions because this has come up in multiple, um, and I'd love to get multiple opinions on this. So intermittent fasting and uh, smoothies versus juicing versus eating the whole food or uh, vegetable? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> there is some promising data around the use of intermittent fasting in terms of efficacy of chemotherapy. It is a controversial topic because of what we were just talking about. You know, the prime, the primary importance of maintaining your nutrition and your weight as you're going through cancer treatment really supersedes in my opinion, um, the benefit that you can get from intermittent fasting if you're on the border in terms of, you know, your BMI and where your weight is at starting out. So for my patients who are already underweight or who have a borderline weight, I really discourage this approach. For those who are really robustly healthy, I do think that it's very reasonable to pursue a modified intermittent fast around um, chemotherapy. So for example, fasting for 16 hours and you know only eating for 
um, eight hours per day, I think is a very reasonable approach to take. I typically do help my patients shy away from the you know, 48 hour or longer fast, unless they have really robust supports to make sure that they can do this safely <clears throat> and have discussed this with oncology. But I think it's a promising area of the literature. As far as the smoothies versus juice versus whole foods, you know, as much as possible, I'm a, a whole foods diet person. You know, I, I think it's really important to be able to recognize the food that you're eating as food as much as possible. In general, I am a fan of smoothies though, much more so than juicing. And that's true even for sort of nutrient rich, vegetable rich green juices, because when you strip away all of that dietary fiber and everything else that is in the plant that's so beneficial, your bloodstream is really still seeing a, a spike in the blood sugar that results in a significant um, spike in insulin. And insulin is a growth factor and that can influence the growth of cancer cells in the body. So typically if you are doing green juicing, what I recommend is try to limit the amount that you're taking in to no more than two to four ounces per day. And please pair that with a um, whole food that's like rich in healthy fats and proteins, like a little bit of almonds or walnuts or something like that. I don't really like juicing, particularly on an empty stomach. Smoothies, on the other hand, are a great way to, especially when you're not feeling well, when that appetite isn't so great. Uh, it's a great way to get in lots of nutrient dense fruits and veggies and just make sure that you're um, choosing low sugar options, um, both in terms of the fruits that you're using. So organic berries are a wonderful choice as well as the base of the smoothie. And there's some really great webs uh, websites and books out there with recipes. I particularly love the Rebecca Katz cookbooks and I direct my patients to her cookbooks and her websites all the time. That is super helpful. Um, and then one last quick fire is um, on dairy and eggs. This often comes up for mm. patients. Um, yes. should, I, should I not organic? Is it okay? Some of the data shows I shouldn't at all. Yeah. I'm down on that. Such a great question. So um, again, I think 80-20 really applies here and I'll just highlight that for our listeners. Um, as a general rule, I think that quality is incredibly important when it comes not only to vegetables and fruits, but particularly to animal products. So if you are taking in um, meats, dairy, eggs, I recommend that you not only lean into organic, but also as much as possible, um, pasture raised or grass fed, you know, depending on the animal that we're talking about, because that has the most favorable profile of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids, and it will be a less pro-inflammatory option for you than if you eat conventionally raised animal products, which not only have a very pro-inflammatory fatty acid profile, but also often contain, you know, growth promoting um, hormones and antibiotics and other toxins. And quite frankly, just energetically, I think it's very toxic to take those things into your body with the way that our um, farming industry works in this country at this time. Um, so what I recommend, I do, I do think there's some concerning observational data looking at an association between dairy intake and certain cancers, particularly of the GI tract. Now, none of those studies have, um, have uh, been designed to look at quality. So they really don't look at organic versus non-organic. So I think we can presume that this is mostly conventionally raised products, which is a really important detail. 
But as a general rule, there are some associations between frequency of dairy intake and certain cancers, particularly of the GI tract. So I do encourage my patients to limit dairy intake and explore non-dairy options. You know, there's really great options out there now, including almond milk, oat milk, several other options. So I would encourage you to check that out. Eggs is such a controversial topic, and it's one that my mentor, Donald Abrams, who I know you all know, and I um, kind of have an ongoing friendly argument about, he's very anti-eggs. I personally think it's like a wonderful vegetarian source of protein that also tends to be lower cost than a lot of the other options that our patients have when it comes to animal-based proteins. So I'm a big fan of eggs, but I would say just limit the amount that you take them in no more than you know, two to three times per week, ideally. And I also recommend really leaning into organic and pasture raised um, eggs because of the inflammatory fatty acid profile that I was talking about. And as a general rule, you know, we really want to be emphasizing um, wild fatty fish as much as possible. So not only the sort of classic options like salmon, but you know, you can look for wild canned salmon, which is a much more affordable option, as well as lower on the food chain um, options, which tend to be lower in toxins as well, such as wild sardines. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.